Let's hit it. And welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm so excited that you're joining us today. We are going to have a fascinating conversation, as usual, as we learn from people all around the world at all ages and stages of life. Stay tuned as we shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort. everyone and welcome back to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I hope you enjoyed our opening music. It's called Clarion Call by the Mark Arneson Band and you can download that on any of your favorite music platforms. For those of you that are new to our show, Alzheimer's Speaks Radio is about sound information, not just sound bites. We want to talk with real people around the world at all levels who get it and who have knowledge to share with you. Now, as many of our listeners know, I initially had done several interviews on the topic of the pandemic and COVID-19 when it first started back in March and April and did that for a few months. And I had panelists from around the world at all ages and stages of the game, from those diagnosed to those who were family members to professionals as well. And I stopped that because a lot of other people started doing it. And I just thought it was The market was kind of getting flooded with that, but things kind of tapered off. And I think it's really important now that we address that again. So I am really proud to announce that Alzheimer's Speaks Radio has partnered with the Roseville Alzheimer's and Dementia Community Action Team to provide resource information for caregivers and people living with dementia during the pandemic. Now, before I introduce our guests, I always like to give a shout out to a few organizations. And the first is the Memory Cafe Directory, which has about 100 uh, cafes now that have gone virtual out of the like 900 listed. And you can find those by going to Memory Cafe Directory, or you can uh, join me on three of them that I facilitate. One is with Arthur Senior Care, and we do those on the second and fourth Wednesday of each month at one o'clock central time. The other is with Artist uh, Senior Living of Woodbury, Minnesota. And that one is on the third Wednesday of each month at one o'clock. You can reach out to me to get further information. Anybody around the world is more than welcome to join us. I also want to give a shout out to Dementia Map, which is a global resource directory that serves those living with dementia, their care partners, as well as professionals, uh, individual, professional individuals and organizations trying to assist those dealing with dementia. You can um, go to DementiaMap.com and just scope it out. Um, or in the upper right-hand corner, you can take a tour, sign up to take a tour with me, and I will show you the map is much more than just a resource directory. It also has a calendar of, of events and a blog and uh, other, other features that I think are really, really powerful that I'd love to share with you. Two more things that I need to shout out to. One is Coral Health, that's C-O-R-O Health. They have apps they are allowing you to download free during COVID. One is called Music First and the other is Coral Faith. So you can just go to CoralHealth, that's C-O-R-O-Health.com. And now we're going to hear from the Footbar Walker and then we'll get right to our interview. Introducing the life-changing Footbar Walker. I'm Peggy from Danville, Kentucky, and I'm 91 years old. The Footbar Walker revolutionized my care of George. It absolutely benefits the patient and the caregiver both, and that's the beauty of it. It's so easy to use. It folds up just like a dream. I got it in and out of the car without any effort at all. The saving that I made from having to put him in a nursing home came to about $192,000. Does someone you love use a walker? Do they struggle? 
struggle to get up from a seated position? Are you a caregiver dealing with physical pain and stress as you help your patient? The Foot Bar Walker was designed to assist not only the patient, but also the caregiver. Patients have more control standing up, and no lifting from the caregiver is required. See how it works at thefootbarwalker.com. That's thefootbarwalker.com. Peggy, would you recommend the Foot Bar Walker? Do I ever? I would not be in the health that I'm in today at this age had it not been for the Foot Bar Walker. So our guest today is Ted Bowman, and he is a grief and family educator. And for over 12 years, he's facilitated a caregiver support group in the St. Anthony Park area of Minnesota. He has taught courses both at the University of Minnesota and the University of St. Thomas. And Ted is an author and a very popular speaker. His mom died in 2008 after years of what he refers to as moving through the fog of dementia. Ted has also experienced the off-time death of a grandson in 2017 and the unexpected death of his wife in 2020. Well, welcome, Ted. I am just so thrilled to have you on the show. I am a big, big fan of yours and just believe so much in the work that you do and the help that you give people. So it's really an honor to have you on the show today. So thanks so much for being here. I'm delighted to be here and the, the Roseville series and working with you, Laurie, is a treat. Well, good. I'm glad you feel that way about it. That's, uh, that's nice to hear. Uh, it's a good, good bunch of people. That's for sure. Now, before I get in our line of questioning, I always like to ask everybody if they've been personally touched by dementia. And I mentioned that your mom had it briefly in your intro, but I'm wondering if you could share any more about your experience with that. Yes, uh, my mom over, uh, it's hard to gauge, uh, seven to eight to nine year period, moved further and further into the fog of dementia. Uh, and died now about 10 years ago. And so like lots of people, we lost our mother before we lost our mother. The first signs were probably organizational. Uh, she just wasn't quite as sharp as uh, she uh, had been and used to be. My two brothers and I, we were there with three sons. We just took it that she was stressed or you know, a little bit tired and, and uh, thought it was a one-off, uh, but the one-off continued and continued and continued uh, moving from organizational lapses to memory lapses to, oh, I think uh, probably the straw that, the first straw that kind of broke the camel's back for, for me was uh, uh, when she lost her ability to cook. Uh, there's nothing like mother's cooking. And so uh, she just didn't enjoy it anymore. Even that at first I kind of blew off because she'd been doing it for uh, 75 or 80 years. And so she deserved a break. Uh, and my dad was not good at it. So we were glad to help out. But then we would find uh, food uh, disposed of in odd ways, uh, not, uh, not odd to those who are caregivers. Uh, uh, instead of returning something to the refrigerator after it had been used, it would be in a drawer, in a cabinet. We would find molded bread here and there. And all of those signs were that we began to uh, lose our mother. I wrote a piece uh, some time ago uh, in the midst of uh, the first wave was the, the dementia. Hers was Alzheimer's, we think. But then she had a left side stroke in her later years. And I think in some ways that was harder for her than was the dementia because she was always a mover, wanting to move and go places. And the, the stroke deprived her of her mobility. And here's the piece I wrote. The Alzheimer's came first. Later came the stroke, robbing her diamonds and pearls. She lost the past and her left side the story she loved, and her mobility. Still, she smiled, I love you, thank you, dear, you're a handsome fellow, so good, your hands feel so warm, she loved us all, grandchildren, nurses, friends. A smile can soften the blow, especially a genuine love of people and of life. Oh, that is so beautiful, and I can relate to everything you're saying. My mom had dementia for 30 years. Oh, my. She started in her mid fifties and then lived till 86. And yeah, that, that loss of just the familiar things. I remember her making spaghetti and for some reason she like doused it with salt and her spaghetti was fabulous. And at the same time, we all almost wanted to spit it out, you know, cause it was just, I mean, we had to eat out. It was so, so bad. And, you know, she had no idea 
and yeah, just the, the organizational stuff, because that was kind of key to her too. She was always involved, knew what was going on. And all of a sudden things were in the microwave that shouldn't be yes. in the microwave or didn't know what a phone was or how to use any of the mechanical stuff. And right. yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting process. And your pros are just beautifully sets the tone, yet the heart is still there and the love. Yeah. Yeah. Um, through yeah, that, was, that was the advantage for us. It's not uh, true for all people that she kept her, her warm, positive personality. And so uh, after the stroke, she was in a rehabilitation center, a nursing home for a time to try to get that left side uh, to begin to work again. And she got wonderful care there in part because she was a smiler. She was a chronic smiler and would uh, give her smile to anyone. And so the aides or staff or others, I think, came to her room with a bit more ease and more often. And she probably got better care than some other neighbors who were a bit more ornery and uh, at times, uh, you know, a bit sharp and agitated uh, with staff. And, and mom just didn't go there very often. And that was wonderful. Yeah, my mom had a similar personality, too. And people still comment. I mean, she's been gone since... Uh, 2014 and she was in the nursing home gosh what was it 14 14 years something like that I still get comments on Facebook and stuff over the holidays when people see a picture of my mom or a story and then they come back with one too and and just a really joyful um, and meaningful connection that people had even in the the very end stages so uh, yeah, it's the power of the relationships, that's for sure. Let's start um, our conversation about having you tell us about your mission of your organization and how that relates to dementia caregiving and how that has been affected during this whole pandemic, because I know everybody's services have been pretty much impacted with this. Okay. Well, I'm a grief and family educator, and uh, to be more specific in terms of your question, Laurie, I'm an independent or freelance uh, grief and family educator. So I have my own business and move about doing work primarily with volunteers and professionals and aiding them and supporting people who are going through disruptive changes. And so it's uh, trying to train, support, consult, uh, uh, provide resources for people who are doing caring work in, in a variety of settings. And I, But I also have always met with people living with conditions because I thought I had no right to teach or to train unless I heard the real stories. And so I would meet with uh, people living with cancer, parents of children with diabetes, uh, with a child with diabetes. Uh, and that led eventually uh, in the congregation I'm a part of in the neighborhood in which I live. I was asked uh, 13 years ago if I would be the facilitator of a caregiver group uh, uh, located in our congregation in St. Anthony Park in St. Paul, but one that would be open to the wider community. And so was glad to do that. It was uh, a kind of way that I could participate in the church in a way that also matched with my skill set and, and some of my, my passions. And so I've been doing that uh, for these many years. Uh, we did have to adjust uh, in April of uh, the last year as uh, things began to shut down and close uh, in March, uh, many people uh, put it as uh, Friday the 13th of March is when a lot of the the uh, schools were beginning to close and we were beginning to wear masks and all of the, the, the things that we know so well now were beginning. I'm not quite sure, Laurie, if we met in April, it probably wasn't until May that we, uh, but we might have even met in, in, in April but began to meet by Zoom uh, using this, this kind of virtual technology. And of course, the nature of the group has changed because uh, while the Zoom meetings can be very supportive and in some ways people can see each other quite explicitly on the screens, it's not the same as being in the same room and in the same circle with uh, the others and being able to follow through with, with various conversations. So the group ha has continued. We do know that there are a number of people who've been uh, honest and forthright with me that uh, they simply don't like the technology or they have some fatigue about overuse of it. Uh, they love being with their family and friends, but they will choose to limit the amount of um, uh, these, these technologies that they expose themselves to, and I honor that. And so uh, the group has continued. Uh, we meet uh, even this Thursday. It's always the first Thursday of the month. And there's a core group that continues there, as well as some new people being added from time to time. 
And is the group basically anybody going through loss or, or dealing with struggles or is it dementia specific? No, it's uh, caregiver specific. Okay. And so uh, anyone who's a caregiver, prim- uh, almost exclusively for adults, uh, in my earlier years, I would sometimes do, we didn't call them caregiver groups. They were often called parent groups where parents who had a child with special needs of some kind. But these are uh, adults, uh, but they are daughters and sons, uh, sisters and brothers. Uh, most of them are spouses or partners of various kinds of uh, caregiving, uh, emphysema, some living uh, with uh, uh, cancer, stroke, uh, Parkinson's. Dementia would be the, the largest chunk of people uh, over the years. Uh, uh, more people have some form of dementia, but it may not be, uh, it may be a result of Parkinson's or be uh, aspects of a stroke or because of uh, some brain cancer, their, their brain is not functioning in the way that it did in the past. Uh, so those variations. Well, and there's so, I think sometimes people, you know, we're, we're so used to siloing people and there's so much overlap when you give care and there's yeah. so much that we can learn from, from various groups. Now, I know you're big on self-awareness and, and feeling that that is really important for a caregiver, a care partner, a care companion, whatever term you want to use, carer, if you're over in the UK. Why is it so important to really know yourself and, and be aware it's just uh, an important thing that we keep coming back to in the group, and the group has uh, helped me with this as well. Uh, the more self-aware that we are of our stuff, the more that we can be present to ourselves and to others. And when I say our stuff, it's uh, one, what are the things that can deplete us, uh, challenge us, uh, cause us to not be at our, our better selves? Uh, is it the repetition of some of the dementias? Is it the forgetfulness of the other? Is it that they no longer are having adult conversation? Is it the isolation? Uh, what aspects of the caregiving uh, are the ones that are most challenging? And that's where we want to then help them with that awareness, not to say uh, negative things about them, but to help them to, to activate their team so that other people can perhaps do or help with some of those things. I'll come back to that. But the flip side of that is, what do you know about yourself in terms of your own care needs so that you can bring your better self to uh, those around you? A specific example, a woman in the caregiver group uh, for a number of years no longer uh, knew that if she did not go swimming at least once a week, she would not be good for her husband. And so she arranged for care for him for the two hours so that she could get and just put her arms in the water and move uh, through uh, that period and have the body care that she needed uh, to do that at least once a week. Uh, and she just knew that she needed that kind of physical care and where I guess she kind of also lost herself in the water. I uh, didn't have to worry about anything, was a competent swimmer uh, and just uh, uh, could relax those two hours. Now, I think most people need more than that, but that at least was a symbol of what she knew that she needed in terms of her own care practices. For others, it has to be has to do with the things that feed their soul or spirit. Is it music? Is it mother nature? Is it comfort food? Is it uh, talking with others in a, in a support group? What is it that, that helps them to be their better selves? Yeah. You had reference how, you know, kind of the freedom of her in the water and just, you know, being out there. And, and for, for my journey, I remember thinking of the river of denial and I didn't know that I needed help. I mean, I thought I I was organized. I was on top of things. I was checking off my list. And I just felt like it wasn't appropriate for me to take time for me until I got really snotty one day to my friends. And my my listeners have heard this, but it's just a really powerful story. So I like to share it. And they they wouldn't give up on me. And the girls would get together for coffee once a week. And I I was like, I can't, I can't, I can't. And I had a really bad day that day. um, And I was feeling really overwhelmed. And I said, okay, I'll give you 10 minutes. I'll give you 10 minutes. I mean, that's just how I talk. Like you roll out the red carpet. I'm coming to town. I'm going to bless you with 10 minutes of my time. And this should, and, and I'm thinking inside, and this should get you off my back because I can't handle another thing to do. Right. And I went there and we laughed and cried for two hours. Hmm. And I didn't know until that moment how empty I had become. Mm-hmm. And so every week, two hours with the girls. And I 
I, I, it was amazing how much better I felt, how a, a nicer person, a kinder person, just more relaxed in terms of how you have to maneuver through what it is you have to do. And not that I was a mean beast or anything, but I was exhausted. And so for me, it was that feeling of the soul that, mm-hmm. that I really needed, but I had no idea I needed that because yes. it just wasn't on the charts. So right. I, I think being in a group like yours where you're addressing that is brilliant because I think there's probably a lot of people like me that don't go there because they don't have time. <laughs> they just don't right. have time to go right. there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and for some people, and especially uh, uh, in some cases, an older uh, cohort, they don't even use the word caregiver because it's simply part of the marriage vows uh, that uh, you give to yourself at the at the time of the wedding, uh, to, for better, for worse, for sickness and health. And so they feel like it's uh, their responsibility. It's just simply part of that, that kind of vow. But when we begin to look at particular kind of uh, functions, we often have a, uh, an elder care lawyer uh, meet with the group at least uh, once a year, once every uh, 18 months. And this particular one would often uh, introduce herself. And early in the session, she would turn to the group and say, who's on your team? And they didn't, hadn't used the team word, and it wasn't a common word that we used uh, uh, before I got to, to hear it from this lawyer. And she said, if you don't know who's on your team, you're in trouble. And she related it to specific functions. If your primary cook is no longer cooking because of her dementia or because of her, her medical or mental health condition, then you need to get a, a new cook. If he or she did the finances and you are not a financial wizard, then you need to get someone to help you with the finances. Uh, and the fix-it person, and on, you know, the various kinds of, and that seemed to liberate people because it wasn't accusing them of violating the marital vows or their responsibility there as being a partner. Rather, it looked at these were necessarily uh, daily functions that needed to be addressed, and if I'm incompetent at that, if I'm not very good at that, is there someone who might uh, be helpful? And similar to the way that uh, you described opening the door to Uh, people um, being with you, uh, when they began to allow people to help do fix-it things, plumbing, electric, total things, uh, moving furniture, or helping with the finances, they could relax and be more at ease with themselves and not worried about that, that thing that they didn't know how to do very well, and also be better for the care receiver. Yeah. Well, you know, we talked about the self-awareness, and that really rolls into that finding the balance in terms of life, because I think, I think when we're not self-aware, we get way off kilter (laughs) and and our, our vision of what's going on isn't what everyone else is necessarily seeing or feeling. Like, for example, with me, my brothers thought I had it all under control because that's how I made it appear. So uh, they didn't step in for, you know, different reasons, but one of them was they thought I had it handled. Mm -hmm. And I didn't, I would go down in my basement sometimes when no one was home and just scream at the top of my lungs and cry, go, where is everybody? Why can't they see we need help? You know, why, why aren't they stepping up to the plate? And, you know, we ended up having conversations about that and and the difference in perceptions of them saying, well, you're a control freak. And I'm like, no, I'm just organized (laughs) and diving a little deeper into all of, all of that. But balance is so important how do we how do we find that well it's uh, the common issue now uh, throughout the world because of the pandemic uh, because here we are what in uh, month uh, 10 11 uh, of living with the pandemic and we still have ambiguity about where can we go and where can we not go when should we wear a mask can we gather as we just pass through some of the holiday periods can we gather with our family or not do we meet have to meet outside uh, uh, it's the, the issue of lack of clarity. And part of what leads to caregiving is if a family member has a medical or mental health condition, and especially a serious one, uh, most of those are not uh, crystal clear. Perhaps uh, uh, some spinal cord injuries where you know that you've lost uh, the mobility of your arms or legs uh, and the rest of you is okay that might have some stability, but we know even there, there can be ambiguity that there are better days than not, and some days with pain and some days with not. And so part of uh, the struggle for lots of caregivers is being able to live with both ambiguity and stability. 
and to find the way in which to kind of uh, honor each of those, to know that there are going to be days, there are going to be periods that are even more ambiguous because someone has an exacerbation or they fall, uh, they're sliding downhill in terms of their condition. And what's happening now? What does this mean? What do we do? Uh, should we go to the doctor? Uh, all of those kinds of uh, issues of desiring some clarity. And then there will be other times where things are just the same old, same old. And we would like a little bit more energy, but it's trying to find the mixture uh, of stability and the comfort with amb ambiguity. Examples, I often refer to Pauline Boss's work on ambiguous loss, and she talks about the conundrum of psychological presence and physical absence, and physical presence and psychological absence. And so the first, uh, I'm experiencing uh, in a very strong way of psychological presence and physical absence because my wife of 41 years died in July. She's not here physically, that is, but she is psychologically, emotionally. She's still a part of the space around me. She's still part of my life. And especially as we, I move through the holiday season, she was very much a part of it because it was her favorite season of the year. And so she's still there. And lots of people who haven't experienced a death have the psychological presence of the way their partner used to be, the way their mother used to be. And that's the psychological presence. I just wish she was the way that she was, because that's the cry. And they're physically present, but psychologically absent. The, the opposite can happen where someone is psychologically present, but physically absent. And so it's, it's those kinds of conundrums that we're dealing with all the time. Yeah. And with dementia, you know, that can change too, because they might be physically there and very clear. Yes. And then the next moment be there physically, but emotionally and psychologically kind of be a different person. And there, so, you know, and it doesn't always stay on this consistent plane either with right. the disease. Yeah. One of the things here, I am you know, a grief and family educator, and I should have known this, but it took me I regret to say I'm embarrassed. It took me oh, four or five years to accept whatever mother showed up because as I would go, I, I grew up in North Carolina and my two brothers uh, and mom and dads uh, live there and still live there, uh, my, my two brothers do. And so I was the one who would come in from the outside and spend two or three weeks with, with mom and dad, even living in the house with them. And so aspects of their daily life that my brothers didn't see. But when she began to move further into the fog as I would head toward North Carolina. You know, I had all these aspirations of the ways that uh, I would uh, use some prompts to help her with memory, show her some photographs, uh, share some music, do this, do that. And also was expecting that maybe she will have a good day today. And it took me a long time to simply accept whatever mother showed up. Yeah. That's, that's the ambiguity. But the stability was that I wanted to, if she opened her eyes, if she moved out of a coma-like state, if she had any awareness that she would see a loving son sitting there beside her. Yeah, and that, that is a struggle to get to that point for so many people. But uh, for me, I just found it such a huge blessing. And it relieved a huge burden of worry of me trying to control the environment. And so that really lightened my load as a daughter who cared once right. I got to that point. Same with letting go of trying to have my brothers be like me and, and step up like me. Once I let that go, it was like, oh, why didn't I do this years ago? Right. I had so much more time and so much more energy for other things. Right. Uh, it's kind of a, I mean, it's just such a huge gift to be able to, to get there. Now, one of the other things I wanted to talk to, because you had mentioned about building a team, how the heck do you do that? And how big should this ring <laughs> be that you, that you build around you and those that you're serving? Yeah, well, I think the, the bottom line is, as I said earlier, there are so many aspects of our daily lives that uh, none of us are skilled at everything. And so uh, just as parents want to have uh, teachers, uh, coaches, uh, tutors, others to help with uh, younger children, because they may not have that particular skill set. Those of us in relationships also have our particular skill sets, and so we need others who can be there for us. And, and I liked what you said earlier, that to not ask people or allow people to be part of that is to deprive them of their social obligation. 
of their their right to be a neighbor and to be uh, uh, engaged with you. I think it's important if if someone says, "Is there anything I can do?" That we need to have a menu of things that that we can give them. Uh, an example that I often have shared in workshops is that I walked out of a care facility one evening with a woman whose husband was dying of a brain tumor. And I'd sat with the two of them for a couple of hours uh, that night and before, and was willing to do it again, just to offer some companionship to her and to be with him in whatever ways he, he might be able to interact with me. And as I walked out with her that evening, I said, is there any other way I can be helpful? That's the common one is there, people will say, is there some way I can be useful? And we often blow it off. I'm doing fine. I'm okay. And uh, this woman was uh, up to it. She turned to me directly and said, would you mind cleaning up my house? And that was a total surprise. No one had ever asked me to do that. And I was quite confused by it. I was thought she might ask me to drive someplace or to help with this or help with that. But she said, would you mind cleaning my house? I said, well, no one's ever asked me to do that. Would you tell me more about it? And she was so clear, here's the self-awareness. She said, Ted, it's so hard to be here in this place of death and dying every day and then go home to a dirty house. I just don't have the energy to clean it anymore. Wow. And so I cleaned her house. Wow. The other thing that I think is so important too, and I didn't realize this till I, you know, my brothers and I had this deeper conversation about control freak versus organized about why they didn't um, come forward what I realized was I was sharing stories with them and they didn't have the stories I had. Yeah. Oh, that broke my heart. I mean, I, I, that put everything in a whole different level of how I viewed where, where they were at. And like I told them, I'll take some responsibility, but I'm not taking it all because you easily could have addressed this with me and you chose not to. But I just thought, how sad because, you know, being able to serve somebody, if it's in any type of volunteer situation, anyone will always say, I always get more than I, than I give. And that's the same in this. And like you said, it's denying others of that peacefulness of being there for somebody that they love and that they care for. And I think sometimes we don't put it in that realm and we feel this burden that, you know, I'm the, I'm the daughter, I'm the oldest son, I'm the whatever I am, I'm the spouse, this is my duty. And it's like, no, it's the community's duty right. to help everybody through this. And nobody should have to journey through this alone. But society has kind of put out that stigma that if you're the primary caregiver, just, just handle it. That's what you signed up for, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and that really doesn't work well for most people. I, anyways, that's what I found. Well, part of what I'm appreciating about what you're saying is the importance, even if you have trouble accepting help from outsiders, the importance within the family to share the stories. Mm -hmm. And so often in the caregiver group, uh, now group members will speak up about it as often as I do. But if, if someone, especially with holidays coming or back uh, before the pandemic, if people would go to the cabin uh, in the summer or any of the kind of gatherings of family, I said, here's a good time. They're going to see aspects of you and your, your partner that uh, you haven't noticed because you're there all the time. Ask them to tell you what they see, what they think is going on. How is he or she different than they were when last here? And further, the part that you're emphasizing is, that you should be doing, each of us as caregivers should be doing an update with our family and friends uh, periodically because we, if we are the primary caregiver, as you said, they're deprived of those stories. They're deprived of those experiences. And so to give them an update is to help them to, to know what's happening fully uh, in, in your own experience. Otherwise they are, oh, oh I didn't realize, I didn't, I didn't know that. Uh, oh gosh, you've been doing so much. But yeah. because they thought you were competent. Well, well, and I think uh, I think it's real easy for primary care partners to judge without even knowing they're doing that, how right. someone else is going to deliver their help. And yes. what slapped me in the face when, and again, we have just this really honest conversation was, you know, nobody likes to be tied to somebody 24-7. Just right. nobody does. Yes. And so no matter how great I think I am, 
<laughs> nobody wants to be tied to me and they have a right to their relationships. They had good relations, as long as they're good, healthy relationships, let them do the task however they do it because that's their relationship with that person. It's not you. And you know, you don't really want clones of you running all over. That's not, that's not healthy either. And so, you know, when you can lighten up and I use the example of even like cooking dinner, I, I had this expectation they should come over and cook something, not bring McDonald's or bring a pizza in, but that was them. Yeah. And, and that was perfectly fine. It, they still got to eat and they still had conversation and were engaged with one another and other things got done. So really, what the heck was my problem? Right. And, and I didn't even know that I was coming off that way, but that's how it was perceived. And looking back, I can see that. Yes. yes. You know, so, oh gosh. So there's, this is just such a wonderful topic to, to talk about. And I think through storytelling like what we're doing here it makes it so much more realistic and easier for people to to understand the process thinking oh i'm not i'm not alone i've got my own stories that kind of correlate to some of the things that that are being said do you have any suggestions for people dealing with kind of their shattered dreams how do you move on with life you know when you think you know you had this plan and now all of a sudden it's crushed or, you know, it's not going to be the way you thought it was. And maybe you're still living in that crushed atmosphere where the glass is kind of shattering as you go. But then again, once the person passes, then you have a whole nother scheme to deal with. How do you, how do you help people through that process? Well, I think it's an important one, um, a crucial one. In fact, uh, in, the, in the caregiver group about um, two sessions ago, uh, the early part of the meeting, people were dealing with uh, tangible manners, uh, things that needed some attention and asking group members for some help around uh, some of the task and and just uh, the managing of the, their caregiving responsibilities with medical providers, with others, and so on. There was this pause, and one of the group members turned to another one and said, Kathy, you were sharing something about grieving. Would you say more about that? And those are the two pieces that it's often the tangible caregiving, the day-to-day kind of managing that you've been speaking of, but it's also the grieving. And one aspect of the grieving is, is what I've come to call shattered dreams, that we begin even in childhood to begin to put pictures inside of what we, the way we want our life to go. I want to be a fireman. I want to be a policeman. I want to be a ball player. I want to go here. I want to go there. Uh, when I grow up, uh, all of those projected plans, the future story, which is just the natural development of a child as they look toward the future. But even we as adults have pictures inside of relationships, of our moving through the various uh, developmental phases of our own aging from young adulthood to midlife on into uh, elderhood and so on. People began to teach me years ago that they weren't just dealing with the conspicuous losses ones that have names attached, uh, like dementia, like Parkinson's, like depression, like bipolar condition, like uh, diabetes, but they also are dealing with the loss of the pictures that they had inside, the way they thought their life would would be going. And especially, uh, it's the poignant stories. I often share the, the story that Madeleine Gold shared in her book, The Summer of the Great Grandmother, Who is this cross old woman for whom I can do nothing right? I don't know her. She's not my mother. I'm not her daughter. And she goes through the way in which her mother is not the mother that she was. And she says, I know this is a classic symptom of dementia, uh, this turning against the persons that you love most. And this knowledge is secure above my eyebrows, but very shaky below. I want my mother to be my mother. And she's not, not anymore not ever again. Wow. There's the shattered dream. Yep. The man I married or the man I've lived with for the last uh, you know, 25 years is no longer the man I'm sleeping with kind of story. I remember um, a woman in the caregiver group fell off her back stoop one day and fell on the ground. Some neighbors saw it, came to her assistance immediately. Her glasses broken. There was skin broken uh, on her forehead, but no no severe damage. People were assured that she was okay. And she thought for sure 
as she walked back into her household, that this would be the time that her husband would notice something, something different about her. So here she had some blood, she had some dirt on her head, her glasses were broken, she walked in from the outside, she was still a little bit flummoxed from what had just happened, and it was as if he didn't notice. And for her, that was the tipping point of the shattered dream. Mm -hmm. That if he didn't notice that about me, what else might he not notice that would cause danger to himself or to me or to others? And as that was the tipping point for her to know that she could no longer care for him adequately in her own home and had to uh, move him into a care facility. And I want to even mention that because for some people, that's a shattered dream first that we should be able to do this at home. Mm -hmm. And some families are able to do that. And that may be the best choice. I'm not here to make a judgment about that. But what was liberating for her and also what was liberating for my two brothers and me was when mom and dad moved into an assisted living because dad was dealing with some things physical. Mom was dealing with her dementia. As soon as, we, uh, as, soon as they with us made that choice and they moved into a group care facility, it was as if my brothers and I became sons again to our parents mm -hmm. because we were no longer the monitors. We were no longer the, the ones who were policing this and monitoring that and being the, all the things that had to be done at home. We were relieved of that because there were three hot meals a day. Medicines were provided at the proper times and the proper amounts. Uh, dirty clothes were cleaned and returned. And so we became sons again. And so the, the shattered dream of mom living with dementia, dad getting older, in some ways we were liberated from that because we could now be sons to our parents once more. Wow. Yeah, it's uh, all this stuff is is very deep, and we bury it a lot of times, and yes. then all of a sudden, boof! It's just out there. You have this kind of awakening in terms of internally of where to go, and the whole world looks different at that point. And then I think one of the the best things somebody can do when that hits is to share that with others instead of just mulling it around themselves. Um, if you find yourself saying, "This is not what I expected." Mm -hmm. that's a clue that you're having a shattered dream. Yep. You know, as we got older, I thought that's uh, the pictures inside are not matching the way your life is. Yeah, exactly. Well, let's talk about trying to have reasonable hope and resilience through this process, because sometimes we're not reasonable in our thought process. <laughs> we try to, we're in this, this stage of denial and it's like, no, this is all going to work out this way. And, you know, yes. how, how do you come to grips with being hopeful and, and not to end up creating more shattered dreams by holding on to something that's just not reasonable to happen, not realistic? Right. Well, the conversation that you and I are having are similar in some ways to the conversations, even though we're, we're doing it uh, to try to support and provide some information to whoever sees this. But that's the same thing that happens in the caregiver group, that people come there and know that they're part of a community of similar people so they uh, can begin to build their resiliency because they're hearing coping ways in which neighbors and friends are dealing with something that they're having struggles with. They hear alternatives that they had not considered. They're willing, more willing to ask for help. And they begin also to see the, the, the dual process of that we need times and moments for our grieving, the shattered dreams or the way our life is or about the pandemic or, or whatever might be losses in our lives. We need times and places and venues for that. But we also need times and places for respite, for uh, restoration, uh, for joy, and that we need both of those in our lives. And that's the, the, the name of resilience. It's not that all of our worries are gonna go away, that everything is gonna be uh, going well, but rather, how do we bring some, some mixture of that? And I love this piece from Nell Noddings, who's an educator, uh, and especially an educator about caring and caring uh, uh, with self and others. She says that joy, as a seemingly real quality of our lives, can invade us even in pain and periods of deep grief. It does not seem to be the case that joy and grief can occur simultaneously, but they can occur alternately. That is, the pervasive emotion may be grieving or worry or distress, and yet joy can slip in momentarily. 
So it may happen that even in the deepest grief, filled with guilt and sorrow and despair, I may still see and feel joy there in the world, trembling at my fingertips. It's the uh, version of the Middle Eastern saying, the direction in which you look will determine what you see. Mm -hmm. So are we only seeing our troubles? Are we also looking for other things? Uh, I love the the image that Barbara Kingsolver used in her book, High Tide in Tucson. She said that the way that she's come back from despair and grieving is with single glorious things. A red geranium outside her bedroom window. Children in a playground in brightly colored clothes playing without uh, any restrictions, just uh, jumping up and down and so on. A sunrise or a sunset until she, she put it, I've learned to be in love with my life again. So single things, uh, music, mother nature, uh, a good cartoon, uh, a friend who calls, on and on, the various things that cause us to smile. There's the joy. So seize those moments, and that helps to, to build the resiliency. And that's also the honesty that we need times for grieving. And we also need times for respite and restoration. Yeah, I put it in um, tears, fears, and joy. In yes. terms of focusing what you have, and and if you if you focus on the tears, that's typically what we've lost. But I always tell people that you know you can't feel this great grief if you didn't have great love first. And many yeah. people never have that great love to experience that great loss. So realizing that that's a gift, even though it doesn't feel like what <laughs> when you're grieving. So that's kind of the tears. And then the fears are usually about projecting what's coming in the future. Right. And if right. you, what's next? Yeah. And if you, if you can swim and kind of get sucked down the drain in that plane as well, because we don't always have control over that. And then there's the, the present moment where we can, that's the only place we can find joy, where we can create joy. It's not in the past. It's not in the present. It's really in that moment. And so it gets right back to the point of what are you going to look for? Because yes. they're, they're all there, but you just have to decide what do you want most of. Right. And, and which direction are you looking? Yep. And it really is what I have found. It's the little itty bitty things that bring me great joy. Mm -hmm. It's those precious memories. It's the sound of a giggle or a touch or, you know, it's not these big things that everybody tells us is going to bring us joy. It's not money. It's not fame. It's not you know, a big whoop-de-doo party. It, it's not those things. It's really these intense moments that are, are so beautiful and so clear and a lot of times just innocent. They just happen, like you mentioned with the kids. And, and yet when you fully appreciate that, that there's nothing that fills you up, I don't think more than those little innocent, innocent moments like that. What kinds of things do you hear from families who go to your support group? I would imagine it really has to help shape their response and give them a platform of soundness that they're not alone. And I think that's huge in and of itself. Right. And it's especially important, uh, your earlier question about how we adjusted with the pandemic is that even if people don't like the, the virtual technology, it breaks the isolation. Mm -hmm. We can gather in a room, uh, let's even call it a Zoom a platform, a Zoom room, and know that we're not alone, that other people are experiencing, yes, aspects that are different, the family relationships are different, but there's often much more commonality in those groups than there is uh, a difference. And so people get reassured, uh, and sometimes they will see someone who is perseverating around something that they are handling well, and they can, oh, I'm doing better on that than I thought I was. Yeah. Oh, so it's all of that that they learn from one another and get from each other that I think helps to promote the resiliency and, and makes our hope uh, legitimate and honest. Well, and I, I have found too in these groups that a lot of times people enter thinking they don't know much and then they learn, oh, oh yes. I'm a couple of steps ahead of this person, you know, and, and I can help them out. And so then that gives them purpose to their situation to be able to lend a hand because they know how appreciative they are when someone else shares a story or lends a hand. And so I, I think that camaraderie builds so quickly is what I've seen in groups. And many people swap phone numbers. And if they're not comfortable with this whole virtual thing, 
hey, we've had the telephone for many, many years and you can pop on that and talk, yes. you know, yeah. away to your heart's content, to, right. you know, or do a drive-by visit where one's in the car and one's outside or whatever it might be, or two people meeting in a parking lot, you know, in their cars in the winter because it's slippery out here in Minnesota. So, I mean, I think there's a lot of different ways to make things happen for people. Yeah. Right, right. And people began to learn about that. Recently, someone uh, had finally made the decision to uh, explore a day program for her husband. And the group helped her with that. But then she helped the group by describing what she had done so that they could learn how to do that. Yep. Whether they make the same decision that she did, to even hear that she was exploring that and investigating that to see if that would be uh, advantageous to him, to her, uh, to the caregiving, uh, there's where the groups are so powerful. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. What are some of the biggest challenges that, that you've faced as a facilitator in terms of, of dealing with people during the pandemic? It probably is just the, I think we're dealing with the stress overload, stress accumulation. They not only have their personal situations that they're dealing with, but they're worried about their children and grandchildren. Uh, personally, uh, a grandson of mine went off to his first year of college in August and was sent home uh, in the middle of September because there were too many cases of COVID uh, on campus and in uh, the county in which his college was located. So there was a shattered dream for his parents. In some ways, it was a shattered dream for a grandpa because I wanted his first year to go so well. And I thought this college appeared to be one that uh, where it would go well, but it didn't. And so it's just being aware of the the many stresses that people have. We often get so focused on the caregiving role and we don't ask about what else is going on in your family right now. What else is going on in the world? Uh, a lot of people are grieving the state of the world, They're wondering you know, what's going to happen tomorrow in Georgia, what's going to happen on the 20th of January here in the United States, uh, what's happening you know, here and there. And so uh, we need to give them a platform also to help them to look and see if they are worried about the state of the world or about the pandemic. How is that affecting them also as caregivers? To know that these are intertwined and that we need to talk about the whole person and not just aspects of their relationships. Well, and I think so many times I hear from, from care partners too that the kids are really good about helping with him or her, but what about me? Yes. You know, I, I need support too. And everyone focuses on, the one individual who has the diagnosis while the other person feels they're drowning and they, they so appreciate what is being done, but they need a little nurturing themselves. Yeah. And, and how do you address that, you know, yeah. without feeling like you're greedy or taking away from the person you're caring with? Because I think there's a lot of guilt in having those feelings of, hey, what about me? <laughs> right. And so we even uh, coach people around that uh, and people do it with one another of, to say if, if they're not getting the initiative that they would like from others, that maybe they need to take the initiative, be assertive and, and call a friend that they, they trust, someone that they know uh, has some awareness of their situation and say, just going through a, a bad patch right now, I could use some support. Uh, would you have time for an hour of coffee with me? Yep. Can, can we meet over the phone? Can we do, do this? Can we do uh, FaceTime? And so asking for that kind of support, if others are not taking the initiative to care for, uh, for the caregiver, that we can begin to initiate some of that care for ourselves. That's the self-awareness piece that we are talking about. The more people are aware of their own care needs, and if they can be, begin to be assertive, yes, discreetly with people that might have that capacity to be with you, so that you can get your needs met and thereby be a better caregiver to to those you love. Yeah. And the, the other thing I would say too, and, and please tell me if you disagree with this, but would be to address it with the other family members too. Oh, yes. And that's hard because a lot of times family is so overwhelmed caring for one that's got needs. And now all of a sudden there's two. And mom, what do you mean? You look like you've got everything under control because mom's always had it under control. And she may look that way, and she may be trying to look that way to keep everyone at ease and not even know that it's draining her or that it's draining him, whoever it might be. And yet most families want to know so that they can support you 
through that. But if you don't tell them, because their their perception might be a little bit skewed right now because they're working through all this stuff too. So if everybody can be honest with that, I think that that can be helpful. But I, I know I've heard some people say, well, I don't want the kids to feel like we can't handle this and now they're going to control both our lives and step in. And there's there's a fear of that. Well, part of what the tangent I'm uh, connecting with is that at least most of the caregivers that I'm aware of are dealing with chronic situations, not acute situations. Yes, there can be acute moments where there's an exacerbation or there's an incident or uh, something needs immediate attention. But the kind of conversations that you're describing that are important for families is to say, uh, it appears that this is going to be ongoing. This is a, a chronic condition and we need to plan for this over the long term. And for this to go well over the long term, I need to have some of my needs met as I'm trying also to, to meet my loved one's needs. And so can we talk about ways in which there can be some respite now and then, some coverage now and then, some uh, turn-taking now and then, and look at ways in which, yes, the primary caregiver may continue to be in that role and be willing to, quite willing to do it. But how can that be done in a way that allows some respite, allows uh, some, uh, some escape now and again to go swimming, uh, to take a break, to have a, a short vacation, to, to do whatever, so that other family members can be involved? Yeah, that's a, that's a great, great way to put it. Where do you think the future goes from here? Do you think that what we've learned through the pandemic is going to help us serve people better in the future? Oh, yes. Uh, I think there are lots of things that we've learned uh, and are using uh, this technology today, this won't go away. And to know that we can have meetings with people uh, across miles, across countries, and draw on their wisdom and have these conversations. Or that families, uh, manner that you've raised uh, a couple times, Laurie, is that if we have family members, for example, in New Jersey or in Iowa, that we can do this kind of meeting so that everybody can be included and we don't have to wait for them to come to Minnesota you know, for the next holiday or the next vacation they have, we can begin to do this more routinely. Lots of families are now having a Zoom meeting at least once a week or once a month or something just to bring each other up to date. Let's use this technology uh, and what we've learned uh, during the pandemic to help us for the future. I'm going to jump on that one because something I learned with the death of my mom, she would come to me in dreams. And so, you know, at two in the morning, she like, you got to finish that whole bit because I'm not hanging around a whole lot more. So I, like, I get up and I start typing. And, and then she came to me and she said, you know, you're not going to be here when I die. And I was like really offended because I am the person who is always there helping people transition. What do you mean I'm not going to be there for you? And she said, I need you to be gone. She said, I need to know you're going to continue to your work and the rest of the family needs to deal with death and dying. And they will not do that if you're there. I, uh, and I think this was a whole God thing that she had set up. And I ended up having two keynotes in Arizona when she was actively dying. I, everybody in my family thought I was having a nervous breakdown because I was leaving, except my daughter. She understood the relationship that I had with my mom. And so everything was lined up perfectly for me to still participate in the whole dying process. I mean, it was from the person who I sat next to in the plane to the person across the aisle who heard me in baggage claim talking to my daughter on the phone saying, mom, I think, I think this is it for grandma. Do you want to say goodbye one more time? And I'm like, I said, sure. Put the phone up to her. She says, how about if we FaceTime? So here I am in baggage claim, looking at my mom saying what I think is my last goodbyes. And I get done and a woman hands me a Kleenex and said, I'm so sorry you're going through this. She says, I don't know if you know this, but I sat across the aisle from you and I eavesdropped on your whole conversation because you were talking to the man next to you who had a father-in-law living with him on dementia. And my mom died of dementia and I only wish I would have known you then. Uh. And I mean, the story just kept continuing. And so we did FaceTime through the whole thing. And I went to my keynote, I was on the phone, you know, FaceTiming with her. And I said, Okay, mom, we're in this together. I expect you to join me on stage. I go up on stage, and I tripped, Ted. 
I tripped. I didn't fall, but I tripped and I looked up and all I could see was like white shining orbs all over. It was just brilliant. And I couldn't see the audience. It was so bright. And at that point, I didn't know if she passed or if she entered the room, literally. I get up there and I do my thing for two hours. I get done. I get off the stage. I call again. And I asked my daughter, how's she doing? And she said, mom, it was so weird. She said, after you hung up, grandma got so hot and she was beet red and we couldn't cool her down until about 10 minutes ago. And I said, that's about the time I got off stage, honey. And so I was able to like guide them through things but not be hands-on. So go ask for some washcloths. Don't ask for a couple, ask for a whole packet. Get a bucket of ice so she's cooled down and you know when she's warm and even from chipped ice to the swabs, the whole, I could guide them through all that. I could cut the ice when it got tense in the room because one of my brothers was making a comment that made everybody feel uncomfortable. No one would stand up to him and I just sliced it in two and everybody broke out laughing. I mean, so this technology is really, really important. Yes. I was able to be part of the, the last rites. I was mm. able to see my mom take her last breath. Wow. All through FaceTime. Yes. So people have to realize that even though she couldn't speak, I could still talk and interpret what was going on and I could say what I needed to say and still be part instead of having regret of not being there. And, and I had set myself up that I'm okay with this. Mom and I have talked about this. We've worked. I know, I know her rationale, but this made it so much easier, so much easier. It was really quite a brilliant experience that, that I try to share that anytime I can, because I just, I, I don't think, people understand the power of this type of communication and what can be done. Yes, it's a tool that we should continue using as you did so well. Yeah, and if we can ease our soul in this process and this tool allows us to do that, I mean, that's, I think, probably the toughest thing through the grieving process is keeping your soul calm and and finding, finding a centeredness there. Any advice that you would like to give for people diagnosed with dementia and their families and, and care partners during isolation? Any last minute suggestions or you know, in terms of how do you deal with all these restrictions we're going through? Yes, yes. Well, part of it must be uh, confusing and ambiguous for people living with uh, dementia to, to not under, uh, all of us are having trouble understanding what's going on. And if someone is cognitively impaired in any way, it's going to be all the more confusing. And so for people uh, with dementia, uh, just uh, as we know, to maintain as much stability and continuity that we can for them so they've got that to lean on as they're dealing with uh, other things that are confusing and have lack of clarity. And so the same for the caregivers, to, to have some of our anchors of stability in the midst of a very confusing time with this pandemic. It's just that it's so important that we have these, these anchors. Uh, one woman says that, who, who teaches violin to uh, young students, says that she starts with a steady beat. And if children can learn to do the steady beat, then they can learn to improvise. They can learn to go further with their violin. And that's, that I think is what I'm speaking about, to find what are some of the things that uh, feed your spirit that's your steady beat that allows you then to deal with uh, whatever is confusing and whatever ambiguity may come and what the future may hold. Yeah. Yeah. You have to, like you said, know that steady beat to what is your center? What is your balance? What grounds you? Because then you can identify when you're off kilter a little bit or experimenting with, with yes. different things. Yeah. How about anything you'd like to share with other organizations in terms of how to provide care to the to the caregivers during the pandemic or just the grieving process and, and loss itself in life? Well, I certainly would urge volunteers and professionals simply to uh, have some honest conversations with uh, the caregivers and care receivers and trying to ascertain what their needs are to see if they are similar or different from what they were before the pandemic came. 
and then try to adjust their services to meet people's needs at this time and at this place, because we're facing at least uh, six more months of this, probably more. And so we need to find out what, what's most beneficial and how can we assist one another uh, through this thing. Yeah. Well, Ted, this has just been a fun and fascinating conversation. I so appreciate what you do and how giving you are of yourself and your knowledge. Well, thank you, Laura. It's wonderful to chat with you and also with our neighbors here in the area. Now, if people want to reach out to you, they can go to your website. It's bowmanted.com. Yes, www.bowmanted.com. Yep. And then your email is tedbowman71 at gmail.com. Yes. TedBowman71 at gmail.com. Well, again, I wish you the best in 2021. And again, I appreciate your time and your work. Thank you. Thank you. Good wishes to everybody. It's time to rethink, renew, and reimagine retirement. Hey, everybody. Jared Sebesta here, host of Retire Repurposed. Now, this podcast is about the non-financial parts of retirement, which many times can be even more challenging than the financial. We believe retirement is not the end, rather the beginning of what could be the most impactful, purposeful, and fulfilling season of a person's life. So don't retire. Become repurposed. To listen now, search Retire Repurposed on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio.